Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. And uh, if you're a guest, welcome. Glad you're joining us. We are working our way through the book of Ephesians. And we are in Ephesians chapter 6, kind of wrapping up the, the study in the book. And we're doing this final series um, called Outfitted. And, and what we're looking at is how the gospel outfits us in a unique and powerful way for the challenges of life, better than really any other way that we can be outfitted. Now, the reality is there's challenges all around us. I mean, in this room, um, there's probably people dealing with financial shortfalls. The challenge of, of trying to make a buck stretch, of budgeting, of stress, of expenses. There are probably marital problems where um, the reality of two broken people trying to become one has become a bit overwhelming. And maybe um, it's hard to know how to move forward and, and honestly whether you even want to. Um, maybe we're dealing with family conflict, um, with the stress that comes with being family or being connected with an extended family. Maybe it's work difficulties where we are dealing with um, challenges in our workplace, whether it's um, the need for promotion or recognition or dealing with difficult people. Some of you may be knee-deep in social issues and injustices where you are trying to think through and figure out how to help others deal with the inequalities of our culture and other issues of, of social justice. What, whatever they are, these are all the challenges that surround us in a daily life. The point is that, that life never stops being a series of challenges. We never get to a point where we get to graduate, you know, from challenge school and, and get to go to easy street. You know what I'm saying? Like that just doesn't happen. I know that golden thing you've got in your head of when this happens, when I graduate or when I get married or when I get my promotion or when I, guess what, man, it's a whole new set of challenges, right? I mean, it's just, that's life. Life is a series of challenges and we need to be equipped for them. Now the gospel doesn't tell us what to do in all of these situations, right? You don't open up the Bible and, and, and figure out how to deal with your your, your, your grumpy boss, right? You don't open up the Bible and, and figure out, you know, how to, to deal with, um, I don't know, a controlling father-in-law, whatever, whatever the issue is. But I will tell you, the gospel does do. The gospel equips you to stand in the midst of all the challenges of life. It doesn't necessarily tell you how, what to do in all of those challenges, but it will equip you to stand in all of those challenges. In fact, that's what our, our passage promises, that we will stand in the challenges, right? And, and the passage goes on to say that if, if we're going to stand in Christ's strength, it's only made possible by wearing his armor. Now, last week, we kind of unpacked that idea of wearing the, the armor of God, right? It doesn't mean that we need to actually go out and buy armor. It means that we need to identify ourselves with Jesus. Wearing armor in, in, in this period of time, if I were to go to war wearing someone else's armor, I would be going to war in their spirit and in their identity, there's a sense in which there's armor was more than just protection. It was a statement of who you are. And what we're talking about is learning how to stand in our identity, our new identity in Christ. As followers of Jesus, what does it mean to stand in God's armor, in his identity, in his strength, while we go through the challenges of life? 
And we're going to unpack this because it's a, it's a, Paul gives us a long series of metaphors, and each one of those is loaded with meaning. And so each piece of armor that we're talking about really is, is a different way for us to approach and apply the gospel to help us stand in the challenges of life. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the belt of truth. What does it mean for us to put on the belt of truth? In uh, 2010, a movie came out, uh, Blockbuster, by the, na- the name of Inception. Um, some of you have seen it. If you haven't, shame on you. Um, kidding. It is a great movie. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to give away some of it, not all of it. Um, but um, in the movie, the lead character, Leonardo DiCaprio, plays a guy named Cobb. And Cobb has a unique skill. He is what they call an extractor. He has the ability to go into people's dreams. And in that dream world, which is really a representation of their subconscious, he finds a safe and he's able to crack that safe, open it and pull out information. He is a thief. That's essentially what he is. He, he steals information. And the idea there is that within each one of us, there's a safe. There's a place where we know stuff that we just want to keep secret. You know, there's stuff there that we just don't want to let out. And some of it is, is highly valuable information. Some of it is highly shameful information. Some of it is, is, is just stuff we want to keep in a safe. You know what I'm saying? So he had the ability to go in. He had the guy to be feared. He had the ability to go in and, and open up that safe and steal the, the information. But the movie was actually not just about that. It was about how he had a unique talent uh, that no one else had developed, and that was the talent of actually leaving information in the safe. It was called inception, this idea of taking an idea. He didn't just steal ideas. He had learned to actually leave ideas. He could put an idea into someone's safe, and then that, would, that idea, if it was successful, when, when that person woke up, they believed it with all of their heart. It was their idea. They believed it to be true. Now, of course, that leads to tragic consequences in the movie because he can't foresee um, the consequences of planting an idea because here's the deal. Once someone has something they hold on to being true, they're going to act on it and you can't stop them because everything we do is rooted in what we believe. Let me say that again. Everything we do is rooted in something we believe. And you're like, well, Steve, there are things that I do. I believe this, but sometimes I do things that oppose what I believe. I would say you don't even, uh, it's not the way it works. You may, you may have idealistic beliefs. You may have things that you want to believe. And maybe you're in the process of learning how to believe, but you're not there yet. There are things that you really believe, and you always act on the things you really believe. You're always acting on things you believe, and you're always acting in the end for self-motivated purposes. It's the way we're wired, just reality of it. So those ugly things you do <laughs> are not aberrations. They actually show you something about what you really believe because we always act on what we believe. Our beliefs motivate our behavior. That's a complex, um, obviously it's complex to, un- un- uh, to, to unpack, but this shows us the power of a lie, doesn't it? Because if you believe a lie you're still going to act on it because you don't know it's a lie. That's the whole point of deception, right? You think it's true. You're always acting on what you perceive to be true. And that's the danger, isn't it? Because what you perceive to be true may not actually be true. What you perceive to be true may, in fact, be partly true and partly false. But you always act on what you perceive to be true. And it influences the choices you make and, and, and your behaviors, right? And if somebody can give us a lie willfully implants an idea into our thinking that is not true, we'll act on it as if it were, even if it means in the end we destroy ourselves. And we see that happen around us all the time. People making what we think of as stupid choices that end in self-destruction. To them, those choices make perfect sense. To them, those, those choices are actually taking them in a direction they think they want to go because they have been deceived in some way or another. And we do the same thing. Here's the deal. If we're going to stand on the challenges of life, we need to stand in truth. We have to put on the belt of truth. If we don't, we become our own worst enemies. We become our own source of undoing. That's not real simple, though, because um, lies are hard to tell. And that's the whole point of a lie, right? A whole point of deception is you don't know that it's not true. You think that it is. And it gets even more complicated than that because... 
There is, in fact, a lie planted at the center of the universe. A single, compelling lie planted at the center of the created order. And it happened in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve in his own image, and they, and they are, they are um, loving each other and walking with God and, and fully enjoying his presence. They are living in the glory of God and living in the overflow of his joy. They are what they were created to be, right? They were fulfilling their human job description. They were glorifying God. They were loving each other, and they were, they were um, working, being productive, creating culture to the glory of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, um, Satan breaks in, the devil breaks into the picture and actually presents a new idea. And that idea very simply is this. You can do life without God. You can live life and experience the fullness of its blessing without God. You don't need God's glory. You can have your own. You don't need God's kingship. You can be your own. You don't need God's presence. You can provide your own. You can do life without God and find the fullness of life without the source of life. That is the single compelling lie at the center of the universe. See, when Adam and Eve believed that lie and acted in rebellion against God, what they did was they hardwired that lie into the human DNA. I'm not talking genetically and physically, but I am talking spiritually. We're all born believing that lie. Every human is born with the basic assumption that they can do life without God, that they can find all the fullness of life without the source of life. And that God, in fact, is, is a competitor. God's glory is a competitor to my glory. God's agenda is a competitor with my agenda. God's purpose for my life is, in fact, in competition to my purpose for my life. And I need to somehow win. And because of that, we now find ourselves in a spiritual battle. And every challenge we face in life, make no mistake, is a spiritual challenge. That means the boss, at, you know, the guy's a jerk. Yeah, that's an interpersonal relationship challenge, maybe an employment challenge. It's also a spiritual challenge. Why? Because the problem underneath all of our problems is this. We believe a lie. It's the foundational problem that has caused every other problem. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. Paul kind of unpacks this a little bit. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now we're going to talk about him a little bit more in a minute. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, all of those challenges, all of those problems in your life are not purely human problems. They may have a human face, but there's something deeper. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual war taking place around us, and there's a very real spiritual character involved in that war. His name is the devil, and he has a whole host of um, people working with him, personalities working with him. And you're like, no, wait a minute, Steve. You like really think about the devil as a real person? Isn't he like just a metaphor for evil? Well, the scripture actually presents him as a real personality, a person, not a human. He's an angel. But, but Scripture does indicate that, that God created not just a material universe, but a spiritual universe, right? And, and it only makes sense that He could and would do that, right? He, he created us, physical beings, even though He Himself is not a physical being, because He imagined it and spoke it into existence. He also created a spiritual universe into existence, right? Reflecting a different part of His character, a different part of who He is, and in the same way, the physical universe rebelled against God, part of the spiritual universe rebelled against God. And it was led by this guy that we now call the devil. Now, when you think about the devil, um, I don't want you to think about, you know, the, the little fat, round, red dude with a, you know, a tail and, and horns and a pitchfork. That's our cartoonized version of the devil. And honestly, I don't necessarily even want you to, to think about, um, you know, the 
the, the way Hollywood portrays him, right? He, he inhabits dusty corners, you know, dark hallways, abandoned houses. That's where the devil lives, right? He, he lives in little girls whose heads spin in circles and spew green vomit, right? That's where the devil is. The reality is it's way worse than that. Some of you are like totally freaked out at night when you go down to the basement and it's dark because you're afraid some scaly hand is going to reach out and grab your leg. I have bad news for you. He's way worse. He's way worse. He's an angel. And that's bad news because it means he's beautiful. He was called Lucifer when he was created. And he was created as the most glorious of the angelic beings. He was an archangel, and, and he was given the job of walking among the fire stones. This is weird imagery, but it's this idea that, that he was created to proclaim and protect the glory of God. He was created as the most glorious of the angelic beings to proclaim and protect the glory of God. The problem was he became enamored with his own glory. He became enamored with his own beauty. And it's something that seems very human to us. He decided that his glory was greater than God's, that his throne should be equal with God's. And so he tried to lead a rebellion, (laughs) took a bunch of angels with him, and they tried to overthrow God and didn't work out so well because he's God. And uh, he was cast out. Now, why would he come around and bother humans? You ever wonder about that? Has he got anything better to do? I mean, there's like an entire universe, right? What the heck? I mean, this is Adam and Eve, little, little people that were just made out of mud. Mud people, right? Why is he messing with them? Probably because they infuriated him. Adam and Eve were created in the blank of God. You know what I'm talking about? In the image of God. Mud people <laughs> created in the image of God. Clay vessels designed to hold the glory of God. Not only were they created in the image of God, designed to hold the glory of God, they were created to be stewards over the entire created order. God gave them a crown of authority and said, you are going to be the head over all creation. And you were steward all creation to the glory of God. Scripture indicates that we will even judge angels. There was all created order. Humans were given this authority, this stewardship over to steward for the glory of God. Can you imagine how infuriating that must have been to Lucifer, the most glorious of all angelic powers, whose power far superior to ours? Why did he attack Adam and Eve? It wasn't because he was bored. It was because he was determined to rob God of his glory in the created order. If he could reduce the glory of God, he could magnify his own. And so he came in war to attack the glory of God in Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve followed, they plunged the entire created order into rebellion against God because they were the stewards. They were the head of the created order. Now, Lucifer's name was changed. Obviously, he goes by a lot of names now, and it's informative because his names speak of his character. We know him as Satan. The name Satan literally means the adversary, the one who works against. Why is he called the adversary? Because he is the one who works against the glory of God in every situation. His sole motivation for his every behavior is to seek to thwart the glory of God and steal it for himself. And if nothing else, to diminish the glory of God so that his might be greater in comparison. He is, as one of my instructors once said, theologically insane. He really believes that he will, in the end, be able to steal the glory of God. He's Satan. The adversary. And what that means is he's also our adversary if we're trying to move toward God because he is the enemy of anything that is moving toward God. He's the enemy of anything that seeks to give God glory. He's also called the devil, and that's the name that Paul uses for him in our text, right? So that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. The word devil, the, the Greek word diabolos, um, we know that word, right? Because we, our English words come from that, like, like diabolical, right? That comes from that Greek word. It's a word, a name that means he is a liar and a slanderer. He is a liar and a slanderer. So those two names tell us a lot. He is somebody who opposes the work of God and his primary weapon 
is deceit. He is a liar and a slanderer. That means his work is not easy to spot. This is really bad news, you guys. It really would be easier if he was like the Hollywood devil, you know, that just showed up when you played with Ouija boards and, uh, and inhabited people and made them go all googly-eyed and foam at the mouth and stuff like that. that. That's just not the way it works. He's an angel of light, which means he looks really good. And when he comes, he tempts us with things that look really good. And he promises us things that look really good. And he deceives us into thinking we're actually going to get things that are really good. We have an enemy who comes with schemes. He's not unintelligent. He is incredibly intelligent. And if he wants to attack somebody, he studies them. He learns their weaknesses. And he attacks It'd be bad enough if it were just an external attack. The problem is we have an internal peace that wants to respond to those attacks. You know, when we rebelled against God, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and and we're born in that rebellion, there's a piece of us that the Bible calls the flesh. And that's a piece of us that is broken from the life of God. It desperately needs the life of God, but it's separated from it. And it tries to find the life of God and everything that isn't God. It's the part of us that is naturally idolatrous, if you want to put it that way. An idol is something that we look to to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. And there's a part of us that wants the idols to be real. Why? So that we can have our glory and not God's. So we can have our way and not God's. So we can have our agenda and not God's. There's a piece of us that desperately craves dethroning God. And so when Satan comes with his attacks, there's a piece of us that responds because we want where he's taking us. The the scripture says, in fact, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the ordered system that we have created out of that brokenness. Now, some Christians have taken that to mean, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, that means everything out in the world is evil, right? So we don't go to movies, and we we, we definitely don't read books, and and we don't have intelligent conversations with people that aren't believers and and, and all that sort of stuff. That's just stupid. Um, And I'll tell you why, because it's not that culture is evil. Culture is actually a gift from God, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall... God put Adam and Eve in a garden. What is a garden? A garden is a cultivated area of wildness. And God said, here's the gift of culture. Protect it, sustain it, and push it out. Create more. I've created you in my image. I want you to be a creative being. Culture is a gift from God. There's a cultural mandate in Scripture where we are to be artists and scientists and creators and intelligent. Culture is not evil. But there's an element of our culture that is. Because it's that part that reflects our rebellion against God. As we have created culture, we have created it in our own image. And part of our image is that brokenness from God, that separation from the life of God. And so culture reinforces the fundamental lie of the universe that you can have life without God. That you can find the fullness of life without the source of life. And that cultural manifestation of that lie has been different at different times and in different ways. When you go through history, you can see different cultures acting in different ways. At the time of Christ, the predominant cultures were were, uh, the Greeks and the Romans. And then, of course, immediately for him, the context was Jewish. Well, the Greeks believed that, that they could find life in wisdom. And so they pursued wisdom. And the wisest among the Greeks were held up as, as almost like like demigods. They were, they were to be honored and almost worshipped, right? And so they were all about the accumulation of wisdom. The Romans, on the other hand, were all about the accumulation of power. The stronger you are, the more likely you are to be able to take life by the throat and choke out of it the joy that you want, right? So the Romans were all about power and success. The Jews were all about morality and moral purity and moral standards. If I can just improve myself enough, obey well enough, have enough self-control, do enough of the right things, then I will be able to choke out of life the joy. Each one of them looks to something other than God to give what only God can give. And that happens today as well, right? I mean, all you got to do is look around the world today, and I won't go around the whole world, but I mean, what about the Japanese? 
I don't know a ton about their culture, but one thing I do know about their culture is they take honor incredibly seriously. Like when something goes wrong in the Japanese culture, you hear about people committing suicide, not because they've lost their jobs, or because, but because they lost their honor. In their culture, if you have honor, you can have life. If you lose honor, you lose life, right? What is it for us in America? What's our cultural? How do we culturally reinforce this lie that you can have life outside of God, the fullness of life without the source of life? I think very simply, our lie is this. You need more. More what? Exactly. Everything. You need more money. You need more influence. You need more fame. You need more friends on Facebook. You need more followers on Twitter. You need, you need more bling. You need more luxury. You need more vacation. You need more, more, and more. How much is enough? A little more, right? Isn't that like the cultural? Isn't that what's reinforced to us on a daily basis? Don't you, if you were honest, actually believe that at some level? That's our cultural answer, our cultural manifestation of the lie that you can have life without God, the fullness of life without the source of life. And these three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil, work together to reinforce the lies that ultimately enslave us to life without God. And they enslave us to choices and to behavior patterns that ultimately keep leading us to disappointment and self-destruction. In the 1960s, it was a period of of, um, drug... uh, uh, um, exploration and, and, and pharmaceutical companies were, were coming up with stuff. The government was coming up with stuff and, and people were freely experimenting. And there was this wonderful new drug that hit the market that was called PCP, um, angel dust. And, and it was a powerful hallucinogenic and people who took it, interesting effect. They thought they were pretty much superhuman. It had an ego effect, an ego magnifying effect where somebody who was on angel dust really thought they were more powerful than they are, more important than they are. That it was almost a God effect. And then there are stories of people that were on PCP that actually exhibited superhuman strength in some ways, like, like stories of them even breaking handcuffs, which is crazy because the handcuffs can take up to 10,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. But what they could do was they could ex- exert their full body power without any pain because the drugs had blocked all the pain sensors and they would destroy themselves in the exertion of their own energy. Well, these guys were, were it was bad news. Um, they were violent, they were dangerous, and often suicidal. In fact, a, a string of them would climb up on roofs and they would just jump. You know why? Because they thought they could fly. They were convinced. They believed a lie, and that lie led to a behavior, and that behavior led to self-destruction. They believed they could fly. And you know what? It probably felt like it for a little while. They probably smiled all the way to the point of impact. You know what I'm saying? That's a great metaphor for how a lot of us live our lives. Let's be honest. Um, in uh, 2009, a movie came out um, by the name of Crazy Heart. Jeff Bridges uh, played this country singer, and he sang a song, and, and the chorus stuck with me. He said, funny how falling feels like flying for a little while. That's, and it just sticks. It's like ear candy. It just sticks in there. Funny how falling feels like flying for a little while. And we smile all the way to impact. And then we wonder what went wrong. Then we wonder how in the world that happened. The dude who has great success at work and starts feeding on that success. I am important because of my success. I am valuable because of my success. Starts investing himself more and more into his work, to the neglect of his wife, to the neglect of his children, justifying it because he is, in fact, providing them with more money and a higher level of of living standard than he ever experienced himself. By the time he realizes the price he's paid it's too late. 
His wife leaves him. His children rebel against him. He loses the intimacy of human relationship and is isolated and lonely in his corner office with accolades of success hanging on the wall. It felt like flying for a little while, right? The woman who is flirting with an old boyfriend on Facebook and reigniting an old flame and enjoying the attention because her husband has grown distant and cold and life gets a little bit hard when two sinners commit together in marriage and say, we're going to do life together. And sometimes there are seasons where your needs aren't being met. And so she finds those needs being met through inappropriate means. And she justifies that it seems so harmless. It seems so meaningless until she finds that it's turning her heart against her husband. And she's finding that it's harder and harder and harder to re-engage and love a man that she is now learning to despise. And maybe it leads to an affair, maybe it doesn't, but she hits the pavement one way or the other. It felt like flying for a little while. The guy who's cheating at his business lying on his taxes, deceiving. He feels entitled because he works so hard. He's put in so much effort and he's just not being rewarded like he believes he should be. So he feels justified in skimming or cheating or lying. And it feels like flying for a little while. See, what ends up happening, you guys, is the devil oversells the short-term pleasure of sin and undersells the long-term consequences. He fills your vision with the benefit of the short-term pleasure and blinds you to the long-term consequences until they actually hit you like pavement. And then he stands back and laughs. As you writhe, looking at what you've just done, These lies are not small and the consequences are not inconsequential. He has baited a hook and his purpose is for you to take that hook, swallow it, and die. And the dangerous part is that he's not just selling an idea, he's selling something that part of us desperately wants. We want life on our own terms. We want to be God. We want our own glory. We want to follow our own agenda makes it much easier for him to sell the lie. This is why we need the belt of truth. As followers of Christ, what I want you to hear is just because you're a follower of Christ doesn't mean this is not true of you. You know this, right? When you become a follower of Christ, guess what? You started moving toward God. You actually get on his radar, the the demonic forces radar. They hate anything that's moving toward God. And you invite attack. That's why we need the belt of truth. When you think about the belt of truth, we're not just talking about a strap of leather around your waist. Like a modern day belt, you know, basically it just is, sometimes it's ornamental, you know, sometimes it is designed to actually hold up your pants, right? Um, So they don't just fall down, right? (laughs) That song, Pants on the Ground, is going through my head right now. (laughs) Pants on the ground, pants on the ground, looking like a fool with your pants on the ground. Hat turned sideways, pants on the ground. Um, I told somebody I wasn't going to do that. Um... I broke that promise. Anyway, that's not when we're talking about the belt of truth. We're not just talking about a leather belt. Um, In the Roman armor, it was, in fact, like a girdle or a harness. It worked as a belt, but it worked as much more than that because the dudes back then wore skirts. They thought that was masculine. And so what they would do is they would take their skirt, pull it up between their legs, and they would use this thing to basically harness it in place, and they became like a good pair of gym shorts, you know, Like, like you could run around in these things, and it wouldn't trip you. It gave you freedom of movement, right? And then on this belt, there were also hooks, anchors, so that when you put on the rest of your armor, it could all be anchored in place. So it became not just a source of freedom of movement, but it became the anchor of your protection. Do you see the metaphor? When you put on the belt of truth, it allows you to move with freedom toward life and the fullness of life, and it protects you becomes an anchor for the rest of the protection. In fact, it becomes an anchor for the rest of the armor, which is what we're going to talk about in coming weeks. So we're not just talking about 
<laughs> avoiding sagging. We're, we're talking about actually being able to move, right? We're talking about here, the, the, not about your waist, but about your brain. The Bible puts it this way. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. love that phrase. Gird up the loins of your mind. That's King James Version. What the heck does that mean? Well, your loins are your midsection. Okay, girding the loins of your mind means tying it all in place so that you can move around, right? What he's saying is, is we need to tie up our brains in truth. We need to adjust our thinking to what is real and true so that we can be ready for action, so that we can move toward life and not trip ourselves up and make ourselves vulnerable to attack. So here's the challenge, you guys. We're supposed to put on the belt of truth. So go do it. Obvious problem, right? If you believe a lie, do you know it's a lie? If you are deceived, do you know you're deceived? How are you supposed to find all of the lies you are currently believing and replace those lies with truth? Do you have the ability to do that? I am guessing that every one of us is a bundle of countless lies. And if we had to discreetly track each one of those thought patterns down, identify them and replace them with truth, man, we're in a hopeless mess. But that's not what the belt of truth is about. It's not about us identifying all the lies and replacing all those lies with different truths. It's this. We're supposed to put on the single truth that exposes all the lies. We are supposed to put on the single truth that will, in the end, free us from the grip of all the lies, and that truth is the gospel. The gospel is the idea. If you think about inception, man, the one idea you can put in that safe that will free you from all the entanglements of everything else. Because at the root of all of our problems is a single problem. We think we can do life without God. We think we can find the fullness of life without the source of life. The gospel brings us back into relationship with God and speaks to both our rebellion and our need to be loved in a way that frees us from the deceptive ties of all the other lies. It frees up our movement so we don't keep getting tripped up and it holds our protection in place. That truth frees us. So let's take a moment and consider the gospel. And let me show you what I mean. As we kind of wrap this up, let me just show you what I mean by this. What do I even mean by the word gospel? I don't want to take it for granted that everyone here knows what I mean. Because for some people, they hear gospel and what they automatically think is, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's God's plan for me making him happy. Right? It's the stuff I'm supposed to do for God. Like It's like the Bible is this big, you ever heard like, here's God's, you know, Here's God's life plan book, right? You just read it and you find all of God's plans for your life and you put them into action, right? And basically what we're doing is saying that the gospel is advice on how to live. It's really good advice on how to live. And if you'll just put that advice into practice, then you'll move into freedom. The gospel is not advice on how to live. It is news about what God has done so you can live. And that news is more important than any advice we could ever give you. See, all advice is about is changing the behavior. Stop doing this behavior, start doing this behavior. It's about conforming, right? It's about changing the outward appearance so that I start looking like the right person and acting like the right person and sounding like the right person. The gospel's not about changing the way you look. It's about changing who you are. It's not advice on how to live. It is news on how God has worked so you can be alive. And when you believe that, it will change you from the inside out. It will change your behavior, but not primarily because it's about behavior. Remember, everything we do is an outflow of what we believe. The gospel is the single most compelling truth we can believe that will ultimately change our behavior. Not because we're on these great self-improvement projects. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about God getting his glory and us getting the joy. It's about God once again being able to come to his creatures that he created in his own image and say, you exist for my glory. 
and I will give you the outpouring of my joy. The gospel. It's good news. The Greek word, evangelion, from which we get the English word gospel, literally means good news, but it was a specific kind of word. It was, it was about the kind of good news that would come after a, a war. So like back in the day, man, when, when, when your town went to war, or your little nation went to war, they didn't have CNN satellite TV out there so that you could watch the updates, right? Nobody was calling. There was no Twitter, right? It, basically, what ended up happening was if the war was won, somebody was sent back. That ambassador, that evangelist, the bringer of good news brought the evangelion, which was a message of victory from which I benefit. My champion won, so I get the benefit. That's what the gospel is. It's the message of my champion winning on my behalf and me getting the benefit. So putting on the belt of the gospel is not about you getting your life together for God. If you showed up here with this idea that somehow going to church is going to be your first step and getting your life back together, you're on the wrong track. You're moving in the wrong direction. God's not interested in your religion. You can't impress God with your moral behavior. You need to be impressed with Jesus. See, the message of the gospel is not about changing our behavior. It's about breaking our hearts with love. Because when we look at Jesus and we see him crucified in our place, dying the death I deserve to die, I see a demonstration of love that I have never seen before. And that breaks my heart. And it actually gives me the ability to love God back. Something I've lost the ability to do on my own. The gospel initiates in love so that I might respond in love. And I might see God, the source of life, once again as glorious and beautiful worthy of my worship and worthy of my allegiance. When the gospel breaks my heart, God gets my heart. So the gospel is this message that that we were so bad, Jesus had to die. That's how bad we were. We lose sight of that sometimes. We get so used to this idea of the crucifixion, of Jesus dying on the cross, and oh yeah, Jesus died for our sins, and we say that so flippantly. What that means is that you deserved to die. That's how offensive you were to God. You were a cosmic traitor against the sovereign God of the universe. And you're like, yeah, but dude, I'm not that bad. I I pay my taxes. I don't do all those things you talked about. That's great. Who are you comparing yourself to when you say you're not that bad? Probably comparing yourself to people that are worse than you. Let's do this. Compare yourself to Jesus and let's see how you do. You're probably not going to look real good standing next to him, especially when all the motivations of your heart are put on the table. Nothing hidden. No pretending with God. No shoving your resume where you've, uh, you know, highlighted your strengths and hidden all your weaknesses. No, no. You, as you actually genuinely are standing next to Jesus, you're not going to do so good. You guys, we have nothing to boast of. We were that bad, but we were so loved that Jesus gladly died in our place. He was our substitute in judgment. He took our shame and died in our judgment so that we could be made alive and could be forgiven because the justice of God was satisfied in the Son of God. He took our weakness so we could stand in his strength. And he did it so that he can get the glory and we can get the joy. So what this tells us, you guys, is this. Jesus is everything the devil pretends to be. And he has everything the devil pretends to offer. Jesus is everything that he pretends to be, that the devil pretends to be. And he he has everything that the devil pretends to offer. And what that means is that as we walk in truth, it frees us from being deceived. Think about it. What are the primary ways the devil works? We know his primary weapon is deception, but how does he use those? How do you use that weapon? He uses it in two ways: temptation and accusation. Temptation and accusation. Right? In other words, he appeals to our pride and he appeals to our shame. Temptation is about him appealing to our pride. Accusation is about him appealing to our shame. Now, pride and shame seem like polar opposites. They're not. They're in the same exact family. Right? Shame is pride's ugly little brother. And what you're going to find is that in shame is a lot of pride. 
And a lot of times driving our pride is a lot of shame. Those two things are wrapped up. And so the devil uses that against us. He attacks us in pride, right? And and what he'll say when he's attacking us as pride is, is very simply something like this. You deserve better than this. You've worked really hard. You deserve some comfort. You've made a lot of sacrifices nobody notices. You deserve more. It gives us a sense of entitlement. It kind of fuels us with a little bit of self-pity. Nobody's recognizing my greatness. Nobody's recognizing my value. They just don't understand. Your husband just doesn't understand. Your wife just doesn't understand. Right? And the purpose of appealing to your pride with temptation, it basically says, is, is you can get something better than what you currently have by doing this, whatever the sin is. What ends up happening when we drink this mixture of cocktail that ultimately inflates our pride is that we get drugged with an overinflated view of our own strength. I can handle this. This is just a minor indiscretion. This isn't a big deal. I've got this. All language, by the way, of somebody falling, (laughs) but think they're flying. (laughs) Nobody in their right mind holds Satan by, by the back of his shirt and says, I got this. You know what I'm saying? You're deceived in that moment. I mean, this is, but he inflates our pride. And what ends up happening is you're going to run after the affair, feeling like you're entitled to more comfort than you're currently getting, more love than you currently feel. You're going to run after the dishonest deal, thinking that you're entitled to more benefit. You're going to jump. And it will feel like flying for a little while because there is pleasure. But the pleasure will never live up to your expectations, and the long-term benefits will always be more significant than you thought. So he works through temptation. He also works through accusation, and accusation is when he works on our shame. And that's when the devil comes along, and he magnifies everything that's wrong about us. You guys ever see those makeup mirrors? Ladies, you got one of those things? I don't get it. What, who came up with this? Um, diabolical tool of self-torture. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you got this mirror that is so convex, you can see the pores inside your pores, right? And then not only that, they usually put these incredibly bright white lights along the outside, so you can actually see in there. Like, holy cow, I got huge crevices on my face. What's going on in there? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, why? It's like I'm, <laughs> I will torture myself. I will see things no human eye can see. <laughs> That's what the devil does. The devil comes and he identifies your most painful area of weakness and he magnifies it in your vision. It fills your vision with it. That shameful thing you've done. That shameful thing that was done to you. And he says, this is you. This defines you. This is who you are. This is how you see yourself and anybody else who should and could see you clearly should see you the same way. He magnifies the shame. He accuses us. And he lies to us. We're so bad, God doesn't even love you. You're so bad, God could... You're an abomination. And then pride comes in and twists it. Not only am I bad, I'm so bad, I don't deserve God loving me. And if I don't deserve God loving me, then I get trapped. That's pride. Nobody deserves God loving them. You think your sin's worse than mine? Seriously? You think you're like the worst sinner? Weird how sick the twisting of pride and shame can become until it becomes a prison locking us in. He'll use shame to trap us in a pit of our own inadequacy, filling us again with the self-pity of pride. You aren't good enough. You aren't smart enough. You aren't strong enough. He'll bring voices back like your coach, your mom, your dad, even some random stupid kid in middle school who walked by and said, oh, look at your big nose. You know what I'm saying? Like that voice comes back. That's like Satan, like, like magnifying every voice that came in. You know why this stuff is so deadly? Because he doesn't make it up. See, if he just lied outright, it wouldn't be that hard. If he said, Steve, you're a blank, 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 and I looked in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, no, that's not me. Never done that. <laughs> no. The problem is that he takes something that's true, 
and he twists it. The most powerful lies are 99% true. So he takes something you've actually done or has actually been done to you. He takes some success that you've actually achieved, but he twists it just enough that you take too much credit. Your identity gets too wrapped up in it that it closes you off to the grace of God. And you start feeling superior, entitled, self-pity, horrible. You guys, the truth of the gospel frees us from both pride and condemnation. Because the gospel tells us we are not anything on our own. The gospel is the most humbling message ever given. You have nothing and you've done nothing that's worthwhile. You think you've done something? You've really achieved something? That's great. Where did you get the brain to do it? Where did you get the muscles to do it? You think you're fast? You think you're athletic? You think you're good looking? Where'd you get that? Did you speak it into existence? Next time you speak something into existence, maybe then you can take a little pride in your work. But everything you've done and have is actually the result of God giving you the things to do it with. You have nothing to be proud about. It's the most humbling message on the face of the earth. Not only do you not have anything to be proud about, but you're despicable in your sin, an offense against God. You know what the word humble means, literally? Lowly and close to the ground. Somebody who's broken in humility, somebody face down in the dirt. And you know that's one of the safest places to be? Uh, There's nowhere to fall from there. Pride lifts us up. Humility takes us low. But here's the gospel. It doesn't leave you in the dirt. The gospel not only shows you your sin, but he shows you God's love. That you are so loved, Jesus died for you. He demonstrated his love by actually becoming your substitute in death, taking your shame, your judgment, and dying for you. The gospel humbles and it exalts so that you aren't enslaved to your pride and you're not enslaved to your shame. Neither one of them are yours. He gave you your success and he took your shame. And by the way, you're no longer standing in your record anyway. You're standing in his. As a believer in Jesus, you stand in the righteousness of God. That is humbling and empowering. You're strong, but Jesus is stronger. You aren't strong, but you stand in his strength. You had shame, but Jesus took it. You're not adequate, but Jesus is. The message of the gospel radically frees us from the area in which Satan can manipulate and take us because it tells us the truth. And that thing that you think you're going to get from sin, Jesus is the one that really has it and is the one who's really going to give it to you because he is the source of life. So when we believe the gospel, we actually connect ourselves with God, the source of life, so that we can live in the fullness of life. See, Jesus tells us the truth, and it's hard truth. Satan will lie to us, and it's an easy lie. But the truth Jesus tells us frees us and empowers us, instead of enslaving us and destroying us. So let me invite you this morning. Here's the the punchline, you guys. Believe the gospel. If you haven't believed the gospel, what's holding you back? You have a message of love, a good news of a champion who who won a victory on your behalf and is offering you the benefit. All he asks in response is that you trust him, that you believe. What's holding you back from believing the gospel? Believer, if you have stopped believing the gospel and started just becoming religious and trusting in your own ability and relying on your own effort, believe the gospel. Stop leaning into your own strength. Stop standing in your own credit. Believe the gospel. It is the single message that ultimately frees and empowers us to walk in the joy, the fulfillment, the happiness, and the purpose of life as God created it to be. Jesus is everything the devil pretends to be, and he has everything the devil pretends to have, and he offers it to you freely based on not on your record but his. So believe.